والصلاه والسلام على رسول الكريم وعلى اله وصحبه ومن استنى بسنتي ليوم الدين All praise due to Allah and may Allah's peace and blessings be on his last Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam and on all those who follow the path of righteousness until the last day. The topic of this evening's presentation, as uh, my brother pointed out, is that of the four schools of Islamic law, which are called the four madhahib or madhab. And by this topic, what we intend to look at is the position that a Muslim has to take or is recommended to take with regard to the subject. Uh, this session, due to its shortness and due to the fact that this is not a university class, as such, will not be going into that much of the academic issues of the four schools, but really just to briefly pass over the evolution of these schools in order for us to understand how they came about, why they came about, what are the differences, why are there differences, and how do we as Muslims today deal with the differences and with the schools themselves? For those of you who would like to read about this topic in more detail, there is a book which I have written. It is called Arabic Tariq al-Madahib al-Fiqhiyah. In English, it is the evolution of fiqh. In this book, I have gone into extensive detail in explaining the sources of Islamic law and all of the basic things that I'll be covering this evening but they will be in more detail all of the evidence all of the uh, references etc you know can be found there and inshallah uh, in the next uh, month or so copies of this uh, book as well as others of my books will become available uh, Sister uh, Shifa uh, will be uh, has ordered a number of these books that will be brought here for distribution and also the Imam of the Masjid uh, Imam Ihsan will also be getting some uh, copies of these books so those of you who would like to uh, look more into this topic or in other topics on which I have written they may approach uh, either Imam Ihsan or Sister Shifa in the not too distant future to obtain copies of these books the first point which causes a Muslim who is a thinking Muslim to reflect on the four schools of thought, the madahib, is that the way in which it has been presented to us traditionally is in such a way which makes us have to accept them all, everything which is within them, 
as being divinely ordained the word of God to man. That is, as I was taught when I first came into Islam, it is required of each and every Muslim that he or she follow a madhab. One. Two, if they don't follow a particular madhab, then their imam is Satan. So this is to scare us into feeling that we must definitely follow a madhab. Thirdly, it is usually explained that all of the madhahib, all of the four madhabs are equal. However, though there are differences amongst them, each one is correct. Now, depending on who you happen to move with, uh, I'm speaking for myself now as a new Muslim, coming into Islam and trying to learn about Islam, it so happened that I joined the Jamaat Tabligh, or you know, as Tablighi Jamaat, and traveled uh, extensively with them for about three months, seeking knowledge of Islam. They were the only people that I came in contact with who were active, and they told me that it was possible for me to gain knowledge of Islam through traveling with them. So. I set out with them. Now, what I told you about the madhabs is what they told me. However, because those people whom I traveled with on the Jamaat were from the Hanafi madhab, after telling me that all of the madhabs are equal, they went on to tell me, however, most Muslims follow the Hanafi madhab. Though they're all equal, most Muslims in the world follow the Hanafi madhab. Furthermore, Imam Abu Hanifa was the first of the Imams. And they give him the title Al-Imam Al-Azam. Or Imami Azam, they call him in Urdu. The greatest of the Imams. So now, after telling you that they're all equal, you see, something else has been put in there. Uh, favoring one over the rest. Because after hearing all that, naturally, if most Muslims are following this particular madhab, and the imam of that madhab is the first of the imams, and he is the greatest of the imams, well then naturally his madhab is the one that we should follow. Uh, it's the best if I'm going to choose one. So, naturally I became a Hanafi. And, you know, after returning to uh, Canada, after traveling with the Jamaat, I moved into a new apartment in a building which was owned by a brother from Egypt. This brother, his uh, father used to be, was a student of Hassan al-Banna, scholar amongst the scholars in Egypt. 
And this brother himself was quite knowledgeable about Islam, and I began to study Arabic from him, Arabic grammar. Of course, in the course of my studies with him, I would ask him different questions, you know, questions pertaining to fiqh, and I found him giving me different answers from the answers that I had gotten when I had traveled for three months with the Jamaat Tabligh. And he was bringing evidence to support the positions which he expressed, which were from, as it turned out, the Shafi'i school of thought. And later on, I met some brothers from Sudan, following the Maliki school of thought, who had other answers. And this caused me to start to wonder. There seemed to be something wrong here. Because, though everybody was saying that whatever is in the schools is all correct, what it seemed to imply or require of me was to do something which I rejected in Christianity. When I was a Christian, we were obliged to shut off our brains, turn off our intellect, and to accept an illogical concept that God was one and three at the same time. Because for somebody to accept that God is one, and yet he is three, but yet he is one, this requires an individual to turn off his brain. Because his brain, his intellect, his logic, his senses, good senses, all tell him, no, this is illogical. It doesn't make sense. One plus one plus one equals three. It can't equal one. So having rejected this concept in Christianity, that is where you turn off your brain and you just accept ideas that are contradictory in themselves, I found myself in this dilemma that here I was being told that all that is in the schools of thought are, is correct. And I heard, after asking questions, that if a person, if a man, accidentally brushes against a woman, he's getting on the bus, a woman happens to be there, he's reaching out to hold the, uh, those, um, the column in there to keep himself steady so he won't fall down, and he, in reaching out, happens to touch the hand of a woman. If he was in wudu, he no longer is in wudu. His wudu is finished. This is what I was told by those following the Shafi'i Madhab. However, those following the Hanafi Madhab informed me that if this happened, I still had wudu. Now, here was a situation which was now incomprehensible for me. How it is that I could be in wudu and out of wudu at the same time. 
Because if both of these rulings are correct, then it means I had wudu, and it means I also didn't have wudu. How that could be? So, to accept the idea that all of the schools, everything in them is all correct, this requires of a Muslim that he or she turn off their sense of logic, reasoning, and understanding and accept something as illogical as the Trinity. And, in fact, Islam has not asked us to do anything like this at all. This led me to set out on a journey seeking to understand the foundations of knowledge in Islam so that I could put these different things in perspective. And this situation, it may be unique for me because I am, say, a convert to Islam, whereas the vast majority of you here are Muslims having been born in Muslim families, and I hope that by now you have chosen Islam, and not that you are just carrying on simply because you are born in Muslim families, because we all know that Islam is a choice. You know, Islam is not chance. You know, it was just by chance that you happen to be born in a Muslim family. You know, you know that that Islam is not acceptable to God. What is acceptable to God is the choice when you choose to be a Muslim. So, since, as I said, this situation is somewhat unique to myself, I would, however, point out uh, from my own experiences that those people who are involved in Islamic activities, who strive to work for the cause of Islam together as a community, coming from a variety of different backgrounds, they also will run into a similar problem, where differences occur and how to resolve these differences. The first point, what some people have done, is that when they have found these differences, and these differences don't seem to be resolvable, some people have rejected the schools of thought altogether. They say, I don't want to have anything to do with these matters. However, this approach is as dangerous as the approach in which people look at the madhabs as being infallible, each and every one of them completely correct. As that creates problems for us, this other idea that we will reject the madhabs altogether also creates problems. Because if one rejects the madhabs altogether, the madhabs which are a result of the effort of early Muslim scholars to convey to us a methodology by which we may be able to apply the sharia, if we reject the effort 
of the scholars before us, then we also open ourselves up for possible deviation. Because when now we try on our own, with our limited amounts of knowledge, to go back now to the Quran and to the Sunnah, to extract and to, to make and to, to make rulings and judgments for ourselves and for others, then it is very likely that we will end up into deviation unless we are scholars of the highest level where we have mastered the various you know, sciences of uh, Islamic uh, study which is the case of very few so what then should a Muslim do? It is important for us to understand where did these schools of thought come from. If we have understood, then it is easier for us to determine how should we deal with them, what should we do. The first point I would like to make is that there is a difference between what we call fiqh and what we call Sharia. Though in English both of these terms are commonly translated as being Islamic jurisprudence. Fiqh, Islamic law, Sharia, Islamic law. Although they're translated commonly in English as being one and the same thing, in fact they are different. And the fundamental difference is their origin. Sharia represents the divine laws as revealed in the Quran and the Sunnah. In the Quran and the Sunnah because these were both sources of revelation. The Quran, the direct word of God to man, the Sunnah, the indirect word of God to man. Fiqh, on the other hand, represents an attempt by scholars through the different generations to apply the Sharia to their circumstances. The circumstances of their lives. As such, what fiqh represents is human effort, human understanding, human interpretation. As such, it is fallible. It is not revelation, therefore it will of necessity contain some errors because perfection belongs only to God. The second major difference between the two is that Sharia is unchangeable from the time of revelation till the end of this world the Sharia will always remain the same. However, in the case of fiqh, fiqh will vary 
based on the information that scholars receive, the changes, the differences in circumstances which they find themselves. And the example which I gave of that to you all in, pre in the previous lectures is the classical example of smoking, where 500 years ago Muslim scholars ruled that smoking was makru, that is disliked. If you didn't do it, you could get uh, a reward, but if you did it, there was no sin on you. However, that was based on limited knowledge, on the, on the knowledge that the only harm which came from smoking cigarettes was that of bad breath. And the ruling in Sharia regarding things which produce bad breath is that such things are considered makruh for Muslims to partake and to be amongst other Muslims, to come to the masjids. Whereas, 500 years later, 1981, it was related to the masses of people of the world that it was conclusively proven that smoking causes cancer, cancer causing death, therefore smoking causes death, smoking being a killer. Naturally, the Islamic ruling with regards to smoking had to change. So for one to stand up today and say, oh, it's makruh. That is to deny the development of human knowledge over the last 500 years and to turn the Sharia into a rigid set of rulings which are divorced from human knowledge and the changes in human society. If we go back to the time of the Prophet Muhammad the period known as the period of foundation, in this time the basic source of Islamic law was the Quran and the Sunnah. However, the Prophet Muhammad encouraged his companions to make ijtihad. The Prophet Muhammad made ijtihad himself, that is, sought to deduce rulings for circumstances based on revealed knowledge. And in the case of the ijtihad of the Prophet Muhammad, which was like a demonstration to the companions a practical encouragement to them to make ijtihad, Allah would correct the Prophet Muhammad when he made mistakes, as in the case of the prisoners of the Battle of Badr, after the Battle of Badr was over, and a decision had to be made as to what to do with the pagan prisoners. Prophet Muhammad asked the opinion of some of his companions. Some suggested that they should all be killed. Others suggested that they be set free. And he chose the ruling or the decision that they be set free. However, Allah revealed 
the verses in the Quran which corrected the Prophet that it was not befitting for him to take prisoners at this time before he had established himself in the land. So it was really the duty or it should have been, the ruling should have been that the prisoners should have been executed because of the lives of Muslims that were lost in Mecca at the hands of the pagans it was necessary to put fear in their hearts that they would not do this and get away and come back to fight again another day no when they tackle Muslims they will have to pay for their crimes so this was the correct judgment however Prophet Muhammad had made ijtihad and chosen a lesser uh, judgment that of setting them free Allah of course forgave the Prophet Muhammad his decision and the decision which he made as I said was an example to the companions of the need and the encouragement to make ijtihad or to strive to come to conclusions with regards to circumstances based on divine revelation we also had in the case of the Sahaba circumstances where they made ijtihad and this ijtihad was not a source of law in the case of Prophet it was examples to the companions encouragement but it was also a source of Islamic law because Allah would either approve the decision the ijtihad made by the Prophet or he would disapprove and correct it so however it was it became a source of guidance and knowledge law for the ummah an example of the ijtihad of the Sahaba which the most common one usually given is that of the tribe of Qurayba the battle which uh, took place with regards to them the Prophet ﷺ had instructed his companions to hasten to the fortress of the Jewish tribe of Qurayba and he had told them none of you should pray after except in the fortress of the tribe of Qurayba the companions went on their way hastened however the time for Asr came whilst they were in the middle of the journey to the area of Qurayba some of the companions reasoned that what the Prophet ﷺ said was we should not pray Asr except in the, the, uh, the area controlled by the clan of Banu Qurayla that we should just keep on going others reasoned that the intent of the Prophet Muhammad here was to encourage us to hasten to Bani Qurayla to the place where the Qurayla tribe controlled but the basic principle of making one's prayer in its appointed time this principle must stand as Allah said in the Quran that Salah is at prescribed times so they stayed back made their Salat al-Asr 
the others who decided they would take Prophet's statement as he said it, literally, they continued on. After the battle, the companions mentioned what happened to the Prophet and he did not chastise either of the two groups of companions. However, he himself, on his way, when the time for Asr came, prayed on the way. He did not delay Asr into the time of Maghrib. So his action actually confirmed the understanding of the group which interpreted the Prophet ﷺ's uh, statement as being one encouraging them to hasten as opposed to one which was to be taken literally. However, the Prophet ﷺ did not uh, chastise the other set of companions because what he had said could have been interpreted in both ways. And instead, he gave a principle at that time to the companions which be became a basis for ijtihad in Islam and how we should view ijtihad. You may still ask afterwards. However, you have striven to find out the correct path. Now, in the period following that of Prophet Muhammad we find that period, the first part of it, being that of the righteous caliphs. The four righteous caliphs. Abu Bakr, Omar, Uthman, and Ali. May Allah be pleased with them all. In this period of time, we find the other two basic components of Islamic law of fiqh being added. Rulings in that period of time were made in accordance with Quran and Sunnah and Ijma. Whatever the companions all agreed upon became a source of Islamic law. Based on the statement of the Prophet that the nation of Muslims would not agree upon something false. And the fourth principle, that of what is known as Qiyas, or deduction by way of analogy, this also came into being at that time. An example of Ijma is that of the pre-Adhan of Juma. The pre-Adhan of Juma. People call it the first Adhan. It is the pre-Adhan. Because there is only one Adhan. In the time of Prophet Muhammad the only Adhan which was called was when the Imam, Prophet Muhammad came in, sat, said, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah, and sat down. Adhan was given. That's it. In the time of Abu Bakr, it was the same. In the time of Omar, it was the same also. It wasn't until the time of Uthman that the marketplace became so large 
And the noise, you know, when people are in the marketplace selling and buying, screaming, shouting, it became so noisy that the adhan which was to be made in the masjid could not be heard. So, Osman gathered the companions together to try to find a solution. And it was proposed that a pre-adhan be made. A pre-adhan, a person was sent into the marketplace who would then call an adhan in order to inform the people that the adhan for Juma was coming soon. So, start closing up your shops, go make your wudu, and head towards the masjid. This was the intent. And of course, this was based on the pre-adhan which Prophet Muhammad instituted during the month of Ramadan. Before the adhan of Fajr, after which no one is allowed to eat, Bilal used to make a pre-adhan to let the people know that the adhan of Fajr would be coming shortly thereafter so that they could wind down their meals that they were having at that time. Finish things off. This was the precedence or the precedent on which Uthman and the companions decided to add a pre-adhan in the case of Salatul Jum'ah. And this was agreed upon by all of them and it became Islamic law. In the case of Qiyas, we could say that in fact every ijma, every cons- ruling which was made based on the consensus of opinion of the companions of the Prophet it was based on the principle of Qiyas that is analogy because they did not make rulings which did not have an origin in the Quran and the Sunnah so whatever judgments, rulings they made whether it was collecting the Quran into one text expanding the masjid you know, a variety of different things that they agreed upon and did fighting those who refused to pay zakat all of these decisions were based on principles which ex- already existed in the Quran or the Sunnah. During the period of the righteous caliph, which lasted almost 30 years, we found that the madhab, if we say that the madhab in the time of the Prophet Muhammad or the school of Islamic jurisprudence was that of the Prophet. There was no other school of Islamic jurisprudence in the time of the Prophet In the time of the companions, the Caliphs, the school of jurisprudence would then be the school of the Caliph himself. Abu Bakr, he made rulings and judgments and the rest of the Ummah, including the leading companions of the Prophet went along with his judgments. Even though they may have disagreed with him, they went along with 
his judgments. When Umar took over after the time of Abu Bakr, then he would change some of the rulings of Abu Bakr. He would change some of the rulings and put in its place his own, what he considered to be the most correct ruling. And in his time, then all of the remainder, remainder of the companions, they would follow his rulings, even if they disagreed with him on certain issues. So we could say that the school of Islamic law during the time of the caliphs was that of each of the caliphs themselves. After their time, we have the era known as the, the dynasty of the Umayyads. This lasted approximately 100 years. And in this period of time, the leadership decayed. The caliphs soon deteriorated into kings who carried the title of caliph. People who did not apply the Sharia with the kind of care that it was applied in the time of the righteous caliphs, who found a deterioration taking place. As such, the Ummah no longer accepted the decision of the caliphs to be the madhab or the final decision with regards to Islamic law. What you found then is that Muslim scholars arose in different parts of the Ummah, in different parts of the Islamic State, who would make rulings based on the needs of the people in the various areas. What you found here also is that in the rulings of the scholars there was an attempt to preserve the ijtihad made in the time of the righteous caliphs. Because new rulings were being made by a leadership which was now deviant, which could not be trusted, and there was fear that these rulings would now overshadow the rulings of the righteous companions of the Prophet who made their rulings in accordance to the teachings. An attempt was made then to gather the rulings of the companions and to preserve them for later generations. Part of that effort involved the collection of the traditions of Prophet Muhammad because there was also a movement which had arisen during the time of the Umayyads in which individuals attempted to fabricate traditions which were later attributed to Prophet Muhammad in order to cause deviation amongst the Ummah without them realizing what is going on. So scholars who were involved in the transference of the traditions of the Prophet also began the process of 
identifying the fabricated traditions and separating them out from the authentic traditions. Now, there were two modes of approach to Islamic jurisprudence or fiqh which began from the time of the Sahaba and increased in their uh, development during the time of the Umayyads. This was that the two schools could be called the school of Ahlul Hadith and the school of Ahli Rai. That is, the school of the people who concentrated on the traditions of the Prophet Muhammad and the other school was that of those who allowed more speculative interpretations. One, the school of the people of Hadith was called the school of practical fiqh and the other was called the school of hypothetical fiqh. And these schools were represented by the time of the Umayyads and early Abbasids. They were represented by Abu Hanifa who was in Iraq representing the school of hypothetical fiqh and Malik in Medina representing the school of practical fiqh. The difference in their approach was that Malik would not tackle any problems which did not have an origin in reality, a problem which existed. In his circles of learning, whenever someone approached him, saying to him, what would be the ruling if so-and-so happened, he would say, go to Iraq. Go to the people of opinion. Here we only deal with what exists. Those scholars of Iraq came to be known as the Ara'ayta Iyun, that is, those who used to ask the question, what if? Whereas those in Medina concentrated on existing circumstances. Those in Iraq, led by Abu Hanifa, they had a rationale for their, their approach. Their rationale was that it is better to prepare for circumstances before they occur. Let us work out the various possibilities in order that when such circumstances occur, people will be already prepared for them. So what you would find is that in these two different schools, you found a different approach to fiqh. In the case of the people of Iraq, what you would find is that Abu Hanifa, he would introduce an issue or he would ask one of the students to introduce an issue. 
And then they would discuss this issue. And Abu Hanifa would debate and discuss with them until they co he convinced them with regards to a particular ruling. After they were convinced that this was the ruling, then he would take the opposite position and argue with them until he convinced them that it was another ruling. This was training that he gave them, you know, in terms of intellectual training and reasoning, you know. But this was how he taught. And he would forbid them, his main students, Abu Yusuf, he would forbid them from writing down his rulings because he said, listen, I make a ruling today and I change it tomorrow. So don't write down what I have given you. You take it, your rulings from the sources, the Quran, the Sunnah, as I have taken it. This was his mode of teaching. And of course, they would bring, when they were discussing and, and arguing or proving points, they would bring quotes from the Quran, quotes from the Sunnah. So it was not just merely an intellectual exercise. I mean, they were using the sources of Islamic knowledge. The, in Medina instead, what you found was that Imam Malik, what he would do was he would narrate to them traditions of the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu and uh, statements or opinions of the companions of the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu He had gathered himself a body of traditions which he called as a whole al-muwatta or the well-beaten path and he would narrate these traditions as he narrated the traditions people would discuss or raise questions of existing uh, issues which needed rulings and he would quote for them some of the traditions from the muwatta to resolve their problems. This was his approach. It should be noted at this point that the number of schools of Islamic law were many. Not just the four that we know about, there were tens and twenties, thirties and forties. There were many different schools of Islamic law. And the scholars who headed these schools were as great as the four scholars who we now know as the founders of the main four schools which we follow. Some people mistakenly think that the reason why we only have four now and there were tens, twenties and thirties before is because these four were the most outstanding, the most knowledgeable of all of these. This is why theirs remained and the others disappeared. But actually when you go into the history of the various schools of Islamic law, you find that the scholars who were the contemporaries of Abu Hanifa, Malik ibn Anas, uh, Shafi and Ahmed ibn Hanbal, these scholars who were their contemporaries were as knowledgeable as they were. In some cases they were more knowledgeable. However, 
their schools of law disappeared for a variety of different reasons. For example, you had the Awza'i school. Most people never even heard of Awza'i. Imam Awza'i. This, he was a contemporary of Abu Hanifa and Malik. He had a school which was as strong with as many followers in the area of Syria. However, in time, his school disappeared. It was very strong, and he was a scholar of the 8th century all the way up until the 10th century. For 200 years, his school was a prominent school in Syria, Palestine, Lebanon, and in Spain, and Jordan included. This was the main school of that area. However, in the 10th century, the leading scholar who was, was appointed as the main judge for that region, his name was Abu Zara, and he was from the Shafi'i school of thought. And as the judge based in Damascus, he offered 100 dinars for anyone who memorized the concise book of Shafi'i jurisprudence known as Mukhtasar Muzani. And the students who were studying in the schools at the time, you know, were encouraged through the offering of such a prize to memorize this book. And of course, in memorizing this book now, this was a book of Shafi'i Fiqh, then you found Shafi'i Fiqh was starting to take precedence over Awza'i Fiqh. And with, by the 11th century, the Awza'i school of thought had disappeared. Not because Imam Awza'i was a lesser scholar than Shafi'i or Abu Hanifa, no but simply because of this political appointment and the offering of a prize for the memorization. Because what would happen also is that Abu Zara, being the chief judge in Damascus, when he was appointing local judges, he would appoint judges who were following the same madhab as himself. So this was further encouragement to students who are studying that if we want to get an appointment after we graduate, then it's best to learn the Shafi'i Madhab. You see? So this political method was the main reason why this school of Islamic law died out. Another example is that of the Sauri Madhab, which was based also in Kufa. And he, Imam Sauri, Sufyan Sauri, was a contemporary also of Abu Hanifa. However, during the Abbasid era, Al-Mansur appointed a governor to the region of Kufa who demanded that Sufyan al-Thawri become a part of the official uh, judge uh, 
structure judiciary of the region. Sufyan al-Sawi did not want to become a part of that official uh, governmental setup because he believed that there was deviation which had taken place and that if he allowed himself to become a judge within that system he would, his rulings would be affected. He would not have the freedom to rule in accordance with what he saw to be correct but he would be obliged to follow the official state line. So, when the appointment or the order to come for appointment was sent to him, he tore it up and threw it in the Tigris. And of course, when he did that, he was also obliged to go into hiding. Because now, the governor, when he heard of that, he sent people to track him down and bring him for judgment. So, Sufyan al-Sawri, Imam Sufyan al-Sawri, was obliged to spend the rest of his life in hiding. He still had students, but, you know, he had to be traveling and moving from place to place to place. So naturally, uh, students, it was difficult for students to keep up with him. And, in fact, actually, before he died, he instructed his main student, Ammar ibn Saif, to erase all of his writings. He instructed him to erase all of the rulings that he had written down from him. Because, as he felt, the rulings were rulings he made based on Quran and Sunnah for his time and his era. It wasn't to be something for all times and all eras. So he instructed that they be erased. His rulings, however, you know, have been recorded by other scholars who were involved in debates with him. So you'll find in the various books of Islamic law, uh, and jurisprudence, the opinion of Sufyan al-Sawri is recorded, the evidence which he used, and in fact, in recent times, one of the scholars from that region, from Syria, has compiled a book called The Fiqh of Sufyan al-Sawri, in which he gathered from all of the various books that are out there, which mention his rulings, into one uh, book, which gives an idea, a general idea, of his train of thought, his line of reasoning, in his jurisprudence. The third example I'd like to give of major scholars of that time, and this is just so you will understand that there were major scholars and there was a reason why these scholars and their schools of thought no longer exist, is that of Imam Laith ibn Sa'ad. His school of, of thought was called the Laithi Madhab. Of course, most people who ever heard of the Laithi Madhab. It was a major school of thought and Imam Laith was a contemporary of Imam Malik. And in fact, Imam Ashafi studied under Imam Malik for close to 30 years. He became one of the narrators of the Muwatta, the compilation of Imam Malik. After studying under Imam Malik for 30 years, after Imam Malik died, then he went to Iraq to study under the students of Abu Hanifa because Abu Hanifa was by that time dead and after studying under them under Muhammad ibn al-Shaybani Muhammad al-Shaybani and uh, he then set out to Egypt to study under Imam Laith however by the time he got there Imam Laith was already dead he had died a few years before 
So he studied under the students of Imam Lais. After studying under them and absorbing the knowledge which they had, he made a statement. He said, Imam Lais is a greater scholar of jurisprudence than Imam Malik. However, his students caused his school of law to be lost. He had weak students. He did not have outstanding students like those of Imam Malik. So his school of thought became lost. What it is is that it was absorbed by Imam Shafi'i and became a part of the school of jurisprudence which was established by Imam Shafi'i in Egypt which supplanted or displaced the Lafi school of thought. So, what we have? Some examples to let you know that there were many schools of thought. That the reason why they disappeared was not because the scholars were themselves not great scholars, but for a variety of different reasons. Some of them political, some of them having to do with their students, some of them having to do with uh, the inability to maintain students due to the fact that uh, scholars were at odds with the political leadership of the, the region. The other point to note here, and this is really to take into account the claim made by some people that Imam Abu Hanifa is the greatest of the Imams, Imam Azam. See, this is a travesty. This is incorrect for us to do this because the scholars, these scholars did not encourage this kind of partisanship where people are going to hold on to their imam and say, well, this is the greatest imam. He's better than all the others. That's why we should follow him. No, they never encouraged this. And their students never understood this. 